Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. That was an incredible time just to worship and sing out. You guys sound awesome. That was good. Kyle, Band, thanks so much for leading us. Hey, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll celebrate God's truth. If you're new to our church and wondered why we just clapped and cheered, well, we love God's Word. We think it's uh, powerful in bringing us life and hope, and uh, it's His Word preserved for us for all time, and so we get to know God through His Word, so we celebrate that. Um, Have you ever thought you were doing a really good job at something only to get an evaluation from someone who was ahead of you and they kind of told you, hey, you're not doing such a good job after all. Anybody ever had that experience? That was like every grade card day for me uh, growing up in school. It was like, oh, I think I'm doing really good. No, you're not. Uh, you're a C student at best. And so uh, that was me. Uh, I can remember one time in high school when uh, my senior year, I was taking a college level English class as a senior in high school. And uh, one of our teachers was kind of leading us through that. And we got college credit for the class. I know that's common now. It wasn't coming when I was in high school. And so we thought it was really cool that we were getting some college credit for, uh, for this class that we were doing. And uh, I had a paper one time that I was supposed to turn in, and I was so excited about this paper. I liked the topic that I was writing on. I thought I had good content for it. I was really excited about the paper that I was presenting. And so I was going to get to share the paper with my class and my peers. And, and so it was just like, oh, this is going to be really, really good. So I turned in the paper, super stoked about it. And a few days later, someone comes to one of my other classes, not my English class, where I probably should have gotten this feedback, but comes to another one of my classes and they come in and they've got this. And, uh, and I'm kind of looking at it going, okay, what is that? And they go, Miss Ware, my English teacher, uh, she wanted you to, to have this. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. And, and so I looked at it and, and it was my paper that I had written that I was so excited about. And she had taken it and she had reworked it uh, with all of her notes and circles and stuff and had repasted. And it was just like, you need to start over. And it needs to be more in this order (laughs) than it was the way that you organized it and read it. And so in that moment, you're just kind of going, oh, that was harsh feedback right there to get my paper back. And I don't know if you're a teacher or not or how you treat your students, but that one hurt just a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. I uh, got that publicly in my choir class and unfolded the whole thing in like a scroll. And, and so uh, I was like, okay, I guess it's back to the drawing board on this paper that I thought I had done really, really well on. And we have those kind of moments in life, don't we, where we'll, we'll think we're just really killing something only to find out, mm, not so good after all. You could probably do better. You could change this. You've got a, some improvement to make here. And you go, why in the world are you telling us stories about your, your high school English class? Well, here's why. Because I think that's kind of what happens to the church in Laodicea. 
As Jesus writes a letter to them, and we're going through the book of Revelation. If you're new with us, if this is your first Sunday, we're walking through the book of Revelation together in the, uh, in the New Testament, at the end of the New Testament. And we've been talking for the last six weeks about these different churches that Jesus writes letters to in the, Asia, uh, the, the region of Asia Minor. And this is the final church that he's going to write a letter to. And this church kind of thinks they're doing really, really well. All the outside perspective, everything that people were looking in and seeing this church, they would have kind of go, man, this church is just rocking it. It's a great church. It's in a great city. They've got all this kind of stuff and everything's going really well. It seems like they're healthy. No, there's nobody coming against them. And yet when Jesus looks at them, Jesus has some really harsh criticism for this church. And so we're going to see today what Jesus' message is to the church at Laodicea. Uh, I want you to kind of see where they are on the map. We've been looking at this region. Uh, John is writing from the little black dot down there at the bottom called Patmos. He's, it's an island off of the coast. This is modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. And you can see there right off of the Aegean Sea where we started out with Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum or Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis. Last week we talked about Philadelphia, a church that was doing a great job, that God had nothing bad to say about them. As Jesus wrote to them, they were really knocking it out as a church and standing their ground, staying firm in their faith to Jesus. And then we get to this last church, Laodicea. And Jesus doesn't have good things to say about them. But I want to give you some uh, kind of context, historically and culturally, to what's going on in the city of Laodicea as we get into this message today. So here's what I want you to know. Laodicea was founded in the year 260 B.C., it was founded by a guy named Antiochus II, and he named the city after his wife. Later on, they got divorced, but he named it after his wife. It's kind of like getting a tattoo of somebody and then being like, oh, we're not together anymore. Permanent. Uh, and so that's Laodicea. It's the city, right? And so, uh, so he names the city after his wife. Then they get divorced. But then in 129 BC, Rome overtook the city of Laodicea. And when they overtook it, they allowed it to remain a free city. That's what they called it. And that just simply means that there was no Roman occupation that was there. They didn't have a, a military garrison. There was no uh, presence of Rome in the area. They just kind of allowed Laodicea to function on its own and to be its own city. So it was separate. It was free. It was independent of Rome, even though it was under Roman control. Laodicea, Laodicea was situated about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. And it became the leading commercial city in the Lycos River Valley. This became a place where people wanted to be. It was a prosperous city. It grew quickly. It became one of the largest cities in the region. And it became a place where banking was a big industry. And so people that were uh, wealthy, that had a lot of wealth, they would retire to Laodicea. And this is where they would just plant for their life. And so there were several things that were going on here that made the city very lucrative, very affluent, uh, and it was large and prosperous. And so there were three things that were part of Laodicea that the other cities couldn't boast of. The first was this, that they had a hot springs resort in Laodicea. Ah, that's pretty cool, right? On the Mediterranean Sea, that's got to be a pretty nice place to go hang out for a little while. You thought we were the kind of countries that came up with these hot springs resorts and that kind of stuff. No, no, Laodicea did it hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so Laodicea has this hot springs resort where people would go to find healing in the mineral baths. Uh, Heather and I lived for several years in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where there are literally hot springs. And people would come there uh, back in the 50s and 60s, I guess that time period, 40s, 50s, 60s. Some of the Major League Baseball players, Luke Gehrig had been there, um, uh, Babe Ruth had been there. And they would go in before spring trainings and those kinds of things, they would go to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Can you imagine? And they would go and play baseball and then they would go sit and soak in these hot springs. 
And it was meant to help revive their sore muscles and give them this boost of energy. And so it was supposed to have this healing factor to it. And so this was the same thing that was going on in Laodicea. They had a hot springs health resort. They also boasted a medical center that produced a really well-known for this region, ISAV. And they would put this salve on people's eyes and it was supposed to help restore sight and help bring healing to people who had bad eyesight and problems with their eyesight. And so it was a medical community as well. And then third, there was a prosperous wool industry that was known for their use of soft black wool. And so it was pretty cool to have this different kind of clothing than most other places. We've seen in some places where they had purple dye and and we talked about Lydia in some of those places where uh, they used purple for garments. Laodicea used a black wool to make clothing and they were well known in that area. Now, unlike most of the other cities that we've studied for the Christians at the church in Laodicea, they weren't under any kind of oppression There was no one who was coming in that we know of at least and it's not written about in this church where they were facing outside pressure about their faith in Christ. So they were able to worship freely. The Jews weren't attacking them. The Romans weren't attacking them. There was, for the most part, it seems like this church had the freedom to worship openly with no one coming against them and trying to keep them from following after Jesus or condemning them or accusing them for their faith in Jesus. So the church has some things going for it. So geographically, here's something else that's interesting to know. Just to the north of them in Hierapolis, there are hot springs that flow down to the city. To the south of them, just outside of the city, were snow-capped mountain peaks. So how would you like to be in a city where you can look one way and go, oh man, the resort areas and the hot springs, and then you look the other way, and now there's snow-capped mountains. It's just a gorgeous place to be, right? This is a beautiful area, and the people have all of these things in their favor. However, for Laodicea, they didn't have a natural water source and supply for themselves. So they were dependent on piping water in from either the mountainous area or the hot springs areas through aqueducts to get water to the city. And a lot of times by the time the water, either hot or cold, got to the city, what was it? It was lukewarm. That's the term that we use. It's the water that gets there and it's no longer hot. It's no longer cold. It's just kind of stagnant and stale. It's not even good for drinking really. Maybe you do this with coffee. We all like hot coffee or I drink hot chocolate. I'm not man enough, I guess, to drink coffee, but... That's what I've been told anyway by some of you. Um, but uh, I'm not bitter about that. Uh, it's just the truth. But you like your hot coffee. We even drink iced coffee, don't we? Like Dunkin' Donuts is making a killing off of iced coffee. We'll take it hot. We'll take it cold. But sometimes I'll leave my hot chocolate out in the you know, seats and I'll come back to it after the service is over and I'll grab it, take a drink, and it's just warm. Nasty. <laughs> Don't drink warm chocolate. It's supposed to be hot chocolate, right? And so that's the same thing that they would face. If you've ever been in this place before where you want something cool and refreshing to drink and you get warm, nasty water, it's putrid. It's not good. That's what's taking place in Laodicea. And that's one of the things that they're having to deal with. And so the final thing that I want to give you in context before we read this passage is just this, that when we see this letter to the church today, we know that in AD 60, Laodicea was destroyed by a massive earthquake, The last two cities we've talked about, Sardis and Philadelphia, had problems with earthquakes. We said last week uh, that Philadelphia was known as a city of earthquakes. And so when we think about this, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. It sat on a major fault line in AD 60. And Rome offered the same as the last two cities. When they were destroyed by earthquakes, Rome would come in and say, we'll help you rebuild that. We'll, We'll help you rebuild your city. Unlike the last two cities, Laodicea said, no thanks, we got this. We're financially prosperous. We're wealthy. Rome, we don't need your help. Big brother, we don't need you. We got this. 
And they rebuilt their city on their own finances, on their own resources. So with that as kind of our context and backdrop for understanding geographically where they are, historically what's been taking place, I want us to read this letter now that Jesus writes to his church and see how it makes more sense for us knowing where they are, what they've been through, what Jesus wants to communicate to them and where they find themselves spiritually and where they find themselves historically. And so in chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is writing to his church through his servant John, and he says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Jesus has been doing this with his church throughout this whole region of Asia Minor as he writes these letters. He kind of follows a pattern here. If you've been with us, you know this. He'll write and he'll introduce himself. Here's what I want you to know about me that's specific to your context and what you're going through. Then he'll offer them some kind of critique. Here's where you're struggling. Here's where I want you to be better. Here's where things are a problem. Then he'll come back with support and go, hey, here's what I want you to know that I'm excited about and I'm proud of. And here's how you're doing a great job. Keep it up in this way. Then finally, he'll come back and say, if you're victorious, if you'll follow after me to the very end, then there's a place for you in my kingdom for eternity. In this, we're going to see some of those elements, but for this church, there's nothing good that Jesus has to say. So it's just condemnation with hope offered at the end. And so when we pick up here, he starts out by saying some things that he introduces himself. First of all, he wants them to know he is the amen. In other words, he is God's final word. He is the yes of all the promises of God. And we talked about that a little bit last week. When Jesus was revealed, he became the final answer of all of God's prophetic word, all of God's covenants, all of God's promises, past, present, and future. They're all finalized and fulfilled in Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the amen, he's saying, I'm the last word of God's promises. I am the yes of everything God promised. In me, you find the fulfillment and the completion of everything God has been saying to his people and to this world for centuries. It's all pointing at me and I'm here to complete that and fulfill it. I am the amen. And so then he says, but I'm not just the amen, I'm the faithful and true witness. And so Jesus tells his church, he is the authentic witness of who God is and how God operates. So he says, if you wanna know what God is like, you look at me. Because I am the faithful witness of God, I am the true witness of God. You can look at my life and you can see, and Jesus told his disciples this, if you want to see God, you have no further to look than to me. Look at me because I and the Father are one. We're the same. I am God in flesh. I have come from the Father to reveal to you who God is. He is the exact representation of God. In fact, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 tells us a lot about who Jesus is as Paul writes. He says, the Son, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he, Jesus, might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so Jesus says, I'm the faithful and the true witness. Everything that you want to know about God can be found in me. I am going to represent God perfectly. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. If you want to know how God operates, watch me. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. But he has one more thing that he says to them to introduce himself. He says that he's the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the ruler of everything. He's been given power and authority over everything. The position of authority over the entire universe belongs to Jesus. And not only are all things created through him, but also he says all things are created for him. We find our final expression of need in life and belonging in life and purpose in life when we find Jesus because we were created for him. You were created to be in relationship with Jesus. All things were created by him and through him and for him. And so Jesus says, I'm the creation owner. I'm the ruler of it all. I'm in control of it all. But he says, not just about the things that are happening in this time, in this age, because this creation is great. I'm over all of this creation, but there's also a creation to come. There's gonna be a new creation. See, God is working all of this to an end in human history. There's going to be a time that comes when this no longer exists as we know it, when life here on this earth as we know it right now will not be any longer because God is going to destroy what's here. He's going to recreate. He's going to bring a new heaven, a new earth. This has been talked about from the Old Testament in Isaiah. It's confirmed in the New Testament in Revelation. So I want you to look at a couple of passages with me to see what we're talking about here. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 19. Isaiah writes, from the perspective of God, and he's writing the words of God. He says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And that's good news, isn't it? That when God brings his ultimate final creation, when he brings everything to a close and he recreates, he brings this new heaven and new earth, he goes, I'm going to wipe away all of the stain of sin from earth. You're not going to remember all the hardships. You're not going to remember the pain. There's not going to be any more crying there. There won't be any need to. Life will continue eternally. Everything will be under the glorious presence of God. He says, so in this new creation, it's all going to be perfect. Jesus then gives John a revelation of this same new creation in Revelation chapter 24. He confirms this prophecy, verses one through four. John writes and says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
So Jesus says, this new day is coming. This new reality is coming, and I am the Lord over it all. And as he writes his church in Laodicea, he's painting a picture of how big he is, of how glorious he is, of how in charge he is. That he doesn't just rule over this reality, he is going to rule over eternity and the reality to come in the new creation. And so as he writes this to his church, he's telling them all these things about himself. He says, if anyone wants to be a part of that kingdom, they have to follow him in faithful obedience. And now I'm sure as the church hears this message and starts to see who Jesus is, they're getting kind of excited. Jesus wrote us a letter. He thinks enough about us to write us a letter. I'm sure he's got some good things that he wants to say to us. And we can't wait to hear this message that Jesus has. Where's he going to encourage us and exhort us? And where's this going to be good? And then the next thing we see is Jesus just launches into them. And it's not good. They're excited about what they're going to hear from Jesus, but they get that bad report. They get that evaluation and they come to reality. Man, we're not nearly as good as we thought we were. We have problems that we need to work on. And so I want us to look at this and I want us to see that what looks like a thriving church in the eyes of the world is a failing church in the eyes of God. So look at what Jesus says to them in verse 15. He writes and he says, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, last week we talked about Philadelphia and how God only had good things to say about them. With Laodicea, he has some incredibly strong language that's negative toward them and lets them know exactly where they stand. And yet here's the truth about this church. They're not dead. He doesn't pronounce them dead and go, guys, I'm done with you. You're just gone. Sorry, you had a good run, but I'm gonna do a church somewhere else. They're not dead. They're still a viable church. And yet they're not living the way that God wants them to. And so he has some negative things that he wants to say. And the goal of this, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, is that God is drawing them close to him. He's hoping to shake them out of their apathy, to wake them up to the reality of how bad they really are and how good he really is and to draw them back into relationship with himself. That's the goal of this whole part of the letter to the church. And so as Jesus does this, he lets them know first that he is completely aware of their deeds and he sees them living in complete apathy. He goes, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're just riding the fence right in the middle. You're lukewarm. And now when we hear that, this is perhaps one of the most famous statements in the book of Revelation that we know pretty well. If you grew up in church or you ever were in youth group or went to a Disciple Now weekend or a camp or something like that, you probably heard this passage talked about. And it always kind of came from this context of saying, man, I'm not cold for God. And I'm not living life hot for God. I'm not spiritually hot and on fire for God. I just kind of find myself in the middle. I'm just lukewarm. I'm just riding the fence. And I go to church and I'm around Christian people. And I even talk like a Christian when I'm at church. But when I'm at school or when I'm at work or when I'm with my buddies or my friends, whatever, I find myself being like them more than I'm like God. And so I'm just kind of, sometimes I kind of act hot and sometimes I kind of act cold. But most of the time I find myself right here in the middle. I'm just lukewarm. We've probably heard it described that way a lot of times, right? Like that's how it's been described to you. This be hot or be cold, it's a spiritual reality. But I want to tell you this morning that that's not what Jesus is saying to his church. It's not what he's saying to us. He doesn't have a problem with cold 
if you notice, he actually says both of these are good. And so if you're taking notes this morning, want to write something down, just write this or fill in your blanks on your app. Jesus is not saying we should be spiritually hot or cold. He sees both as good and useful, just like the water sources around the city. Jesus is making an analogy of how they live out their faith in the world, not saying, I wish you were on fire for me spiritually, or I wish you were just cold for me spiritually. Like God would never say to us, man, I wish you were just cold. I wish you were spiritually just in a bad place. That would be better than being lukewarm. He's not saying that. He's making this comparison to the water supplies. And he's going, you know what? You've got hot water that comes from one section north of the city. And it flows down to this city. But by the time it gets there, it's lukewarm. But guess what it does while it's hot? It provides healing for people. It's restorative to people. People go there to soak in the mineral-rich, hot water. It eases muscle pain. It relieves tension. It lets people find hope from the difficulties that they're facing in life. That's what the hot water does. In comparison, south of the city, where water's coming in from the cold mountain regions, he's saying in that part of the city, what does the cold water do? It refreshes us. On a hot day, don't you just love to grab a, cu a cup of ice cold water and just drink it? Maybe you're out bicycling or hiking around this area. Hot outside and you're sweating. You're just like, oh, I would die for some really cold water right now. Why? Because that cold water refreshes us. When we take it in, it revives us in where we are. And Jesus is saying to his church, man, I really wish you guys were either in our world, in this world that I've placed you in, being healing toward the world, offering healing and restoration and hope to people who are going through hard times, who are sore, who are hurting, who are in difficult spots. I wish you were bringing healing to them. Or I wish you found yourself in a place where you were being refreshing to the saints of God. That you were bringing a refreshing commodity to the world of cold water, like a cold drink. Your life should be lived out to where you are refreshing God's people. And that when people run into you, it's like taking a cold drink of water for their soul. But Jesus goes, but here's where I found you. You're just lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're not doing any good in either one of those aspects. You're just living in the middle and everything has become about being focused internally on you. You're not refreshing to people. You're not restorative to people. You're not healing to people. You're not giving hope to people. You're just focused on you. Everything is you. It's all coming to you. And by the time it gets into you, it's just dead. It's worthless. And Jesus goes, that kind of faith makes me want to vomit. I just want to discharge that out of my system. It is sickening to God when we just get so focused on us that everything becomes give to me, give to me, bring to me, bring to me. This is for me. This is for us. Jesus goes, there's a way for you to live out your faith, to heal and restore and be helpful. There's a way to live out your faith to be compassionate, to bring, bring benefit to people from the cold water that you bring to them, to refresh them. But you're just about you, aren't you, church? And that's what he's writing to Laodicea. And it's good for us to hear this in this context today because as Jesus is looking at his church and begging them to be one or the other, he's also telling us that we have to be careful about some of these things today in our context. Because we live 
in the most affluent nation in the world, we can struggle in this. Where we look at things and go, man, we can take care of stuff. If something breaks in our church, we just give money to it. If something happens in our community, well, we'll just give money to it. We'll just throw Benjamins at it and throw Andrew Jacksons at it. And we'll just throw money. And Jesus goes, all of this stuff that you have, you've acquired wealth for yourself. And you say, and he even uses their words against him. You say you have reason and need for nothing because you're so self-sufficient. He says, but you've forgotten something. You need me. Jesus says, you, you need me. It doesn't matter how financially wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how prosperous you are. It doesn't matter how many great buildings you have. It doesn't matter how much land you possess. It doesn't matter how many incredible ministries you run. You need me. And if you take your eyes off of Jesus, and if as a church, if we take our eyes off of Jesus and start thinking that we can do stuff in this world outside of the scope of his power and his spirit, then we're in trouble. And that's the message that he's writing to them. The old saying about the church goes like this, we're meant to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. You heard that before? Where we say, man, this is the desire of the church. We should bring healing to people and restoration to people and hope to people. We shouldn't get focused on saying, did you guys see how many incredible, perfect people were at church this morning? Don't they all look pretty? Aren't you guys amazing? Look at our museum. We just gathered and collected everybody here and we're just about us and we want everybody to come and look at us. That's what you do at museums, right? Go look at the Picassos. Go look at the Michelangelos. Go look at Leonardo's work. Go to the museum and see how amazing they are. God's going, that's not what the church is supposed to be about. The church is a sending agency. I'm sending you out to be a hospital resource to the world. You're going to bring triage to broken, desperate, hurting people and to bring them hope. That's what we're supposed to be about. And so we have to ask ourselves then, well, how did the church get to that place of being lukewarm, being basically useless and spreading the gospel of salvation? And it's, again, the words that Jesus used against them in verse 17. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. What you don't realize is that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Remember, even in this city in 60 AD when the earthquake hit and it was destroyed and Rome stepped in and went, hey, we'll help you rebuild. What did they do? No, thanks. We don't need your help. We got this. We're financially able to take care of ourselves. We don't need Rome to step in and take care of us. Jesus is going, because you're so independent and so self-sufficient and so focused on your financial ability to take care of yourself, you've forgotten that I'm in charge. You've forgotten I'm the ruler over everything. And so for the church today, we need to say the same thing. Have we forgotten that Jesus is in charge? Because Jesus can say, and if you look at me and you say, well, I've got all this other stuff, what do I need Jesus for? We could do great church services because of all the stuff we've got and all the money we've got and all the different things we've got and all the resources we've got. We could put on a really great show and leave Jesus completely out of it. And you might go away feeling, wow, I was really encouraged today. That was really cool. I'm glad we got together. I had a lot of fun fellowshipping with people, some good music that was there today. And if Jesus is not the center of it, we've not truly worshiped. We're not being the church that he's called us to be. And so he says, you've taken your, taken your eye off of me. Here's the next blanks on your outline if you're following and taking notes this morning. When the church became financially comfortable, it led to them being spiritually complacent. And so we have to be careful about that, that we don't get so comfortable that we become complacent. And then next, our financial standing is not an adequate picture of our spiritual standing. I think that God would want us to know that today. Hey, look, just because you've got some stuff because you're wealthy, because you've got things, that doesn't mean you're in a good spot spiritually. 
We need to evaluate our lives the way that God evaluates our lives. Are we dependent on him or are we dependent on us and our resources? And so we think about the story of Job. Job had everything. He was wealthy in every way that a person could possibly imagine. He had land, he had animals, the currency of the day. He had family that was huge. He had tents. He had everything he could possibly imagine, servants that worked for him. Job had it all. And yet God allowed Job to be tested by Satan. He said, you can do anything you want to to my servant Job, but just don't take his life. And so Satan did. He took everything from Job. He took his family away. He took his wealth away. He took his possessions away. He took his tents away. He took away everything. And at the end of it all, Job still stayed true to God. Because when everything was taken away from Job, Job realized everything I need is in Christ. Everything I need is in God. It's not in the stuff. So Job is able to say, God gives and God takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all about him. And so for us, do we think that same way? If God took everything away from our lives, would we still say he's good? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Laodicea had it all but they lost focus on God and a need for Jesus. And as a result, Jesus said, you just think you have it all. But he started pointing fingers at him and going, actually, you're wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked and all these things. And you're just going, whoa, that is a crazy list of stuff right there. Like, have you ever had that kind of confrontation with somebody? To go, you think you're doing really great? You're not doing so great. You're, in fact, you're wretched. Anybody ever been called wretched before? <laughs> it's not a language we use a whole lot. If anybody does call you wretched, probably just run away. I don't know what you do in that situation he goes, look, you're wretched, you're naked, you're poor, you're pitiful, you're blind. You, all of the things you think you're doing well in, you're actually the exact opposite. So as I, there's a need that you have. And so when we look back at the passage, we see what Jesus says is the need and how he can reveal truth about their great need. So in verse 18, he says, so I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, I love this for several reasons. Number one, because in the middle of their corruption, Jesus says, I'm going to counsel you. See, Jesus could just as easily have gone, you know what, this church is too far gone. Let's just pronounce you guys dead. We'll have the burial service. We'll be over with. I'll go start a church somewhere else. He doesn't do that. He looks at them in their terrible estate and he goes, hey, here, I want to give you guys some counsel. I want to help you find your way back. So he counsels them. And then he counsels them in ways that make sense to them. And he counsels them in the context of their culture. If you remember some things that we talked about earlier, here's what Jesus says to them. Number one, why don't you buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich? Like they think they're rich, but he goes, why don't you buy gold from me refined in fire? He's going, what in the world is he talking about? What does that even mean? Why, if they're rich, why do they need to buy gold from him? How do they get rich that way instead of the financial way? What does he mean? For them, they would have heard this and thought about Isaiah chapter 55 verses one and two. They would have thought back to something the prophet Isaiah wrote when he said this, and this is from God, he says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. So their spiritual poverty can only be purchased through accepting God's gift is I want you to come to me and buy what money can't buy. I want you to come to me and get what money could never bring you. It's a gift. It's salvation. The gold refining salvation of God that's given to us. Because I want you to have this. I want you to be in relationship with me. And this is going to make you rich. Not financially rich, spiritually rich. 
You're so concerned about your money. I want you to be spiritually rich. I want you to be in great relationship with me. So buy this from me. That was what's going to eliminate their spiritual poverty. It's going to lead them away from self-sufficiency and it's going to lead them back to Christ. Their culture is selling death. Their culture is saying, buy, buy from us, buy from us, get, get our stuff, self-sufficiency, be on your own, be independent. All of that's going to lead to death. Jesus goes, if you want to escape what the culture is selling, buy what I'm selling. Mine's free. You can buy it without money. It's a gift that's given to you through faith by the grace of God. And then second, he tells them to buy white clothes to wear to cover their shameful nakedness. He's already called them naked. Now he tells them how to cover their nakedness. The city, if you remember, was famous for soft black wool that it sold. It made garments out of this soft black wool. And so Jesus says, hey, that soft wool is great. You know about that. I want you to be clothed in my pure white robes of righteousness. So when we think about the white robes that Jesus wants them to buy, that always in scripture points back to purity and righteousness. Because I want you to accept from me and clothe yourself in purity that you separate yourself from the culture, that you remain pure to me and follow me wholeheartedly. And I want you to clothe yourself in my righteousness. I want you to have a right relationship with God, that your relationship is not stained and, and put, in, in, uh, put off. I want you to have a right standing with God. So put on these garments of purity and righteousness. And then the third thing he tells them is, I want you to buy salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now remember, Laodicea was famous for this medical center where they had invented this eye salve. When they would put it on, it would help with people's spiritual vision. Jesus is saying again, you need some salve to put on your eyes, physical vision, for spiritual vision. You put salve on your eyes and I'll help you see spiritually. You go, okay, what's the salve that helps us open our eyes to spiritual reality? It's truth. Jesus has said, I am the one who's faithful and true witness of God. So I'm gonna speak truth to you. That's the salve for your spiritual eyes to wake you up and help you see the reality of this world. And so Jesus says, if you'll put on this spiritual salve, you'll understand more what I'm saying. When Jesus tells them you're wretched and poor and naked and pitiful and blind, none of those are good messages. But Jesus is not trying to bully them. We could easily hear that and go, man, Jesus is having a bad day. He just went off on those guys. Why is he such a bully? I thought Jesus was supposed to be nice and kind and loving and merciful. What's up? He's not being a bully. He's speaking truth with the goal is to shake them out of their apathetic state. Sometimes we need that, don't we? To really be shaken out of our apathy, we need to be spoken truth to. It's the difference in somebody telling you, you know, you could really stand to lose a few pounds. And if you want to be healthy, just lose a few pounds. If you want to, you know, or being told, you know what, if you don't lose 50 pounds, you're going to have a heart attack and die. You're being told the same thing, but which one of those two things is going to really move you toward getting healthy and losing the weight? Ah, oh, you can stand to lose a few pounds? Ah, eh, you're probably right. No, I'll eat this cheeseburger. Or, hey, if you keep eating cheeseburgers, you're going to have a heart attack and die. Probably going to stop that then. I'm going to get on the right track to get healthy and get motivated because this truth shakes me out of my apathetic state. And I don't want to end up dead. So I'm going to do what's necessary to get back to health. Jesus is saying the same thing for his church. If you want to be spiritually healthy, you've got to clothe your nakedness. You've got to put salve on your eyes. You've got to get out of your wretched state. You've got to stop being impoverished by your physical understanding of wealth and take on the spiritual mantle of health. And so Jesus is giving them all these messages. And we know that Jesus isn't being mean based on what he says next as we close up here. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this to them. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Listen, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus rebukes and disciplines his children in order to heal them. He says, I discipline and rebuke people that I love. If I love you, I'm going to speak harsh truth to you. Not because I'm angry, not because I'm bitter, not because I'm trying to make you feel bad. I want you to know the truth. He does it to discipline us because he loves us and to bring healing to us. That's his goal. That's what he wants. And so when we see Jesus doing this, it's his love for the church that causes him to rebuke us and discipline us. And I love what Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So if Jesus loves us so much and he's gonna call us back to him, he's gonna do it in a way that makes sense to us. And he says, so I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and him with me. Here's the second passage in this church uh, letter that we probably know pretty well. We would have all known the hot and cold, lukewarm. We probably heard that one at some point in the past. We also know, hey, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and him with me. And here's how we've always taken that passage. Here's probably how it's always been explained to you. It's an evangelistic message. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, he's standing and he's knocking on your door and he's asking you to let him come into your life and be your, sa or be your Savior and Lord. And he wants to enter into your life and turn your life around. It's evangelistic. Jesus wants to come into your life. But we have to remember, who's Jesus writing this letter to? He's writing it to the church. He's writing it to people whose lives have already been changed by the gospel. He's not writing this evangelistically. He's writing this relationally, restoratively. He goes, I'm standing at your church door where all of you have gathered and let everything become about you. And I'm knocking on the door and I'm asking you to let me come in and restore relationship with you in a right way. Can you come back to being the church that I designed you to be? I want that relationship with you. He goes, and I'll come in. If you open the door, I'm not gonna kick it down. I'm not gonna force my way in. But if you'll open the door, I'll come in. And we'll enter into that relationship with the right way again. I'll eat with you and you can eat with me. Here's why he says that. Eating was one of the most intimate things that people could do in fellowship with one another in their culture. And so for Jesus to say, hey, listen, I want to come back into this relationship. I want you to come back to me. Be earnest and repent and come back to me so we can eat together. So we can fellowship together. So there's nothing between us. So that we can have intimacy and fellowship with one another. That's what I want. And Jesus says the same thing to us as a church, man. If we get off base, if we lose our focus, Jesus wants us to be healed. He wants to draw us back to him. And so the very last thing that Jesus says to the church is this in verse 21. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. So the last fill in the blanks, if you're doing that on the app or writing some things down, just write this. Jesus is the Lord of all creation, but he's a humble Lord who will allow us to share in his authority and to reign with him forever. Jesus says, listen, I want to be your Lord and I'm the Lord over all creation. But if you'll follow me, if you'll be victorious, which just means you'll follow Jesus to the very end, to those who are victorious, who follow me to the very end, I'm humble enough to let you reign with me. You get to sit with me in a place of authority. You get to share the seat of authority in my kingdom. I want you with me forever. And so Jesus is telling us, hey, follow me. Enter into relationship. 
let me change you. If you're off base, if you've gone missing, if you've taken a self-centered approach to Christianity, come back to me. We'll fellowship together again. And I'll let you share at the end of days a seat of authority with me in my kingdom. That's what Jesus wants. So maybe today you need to ask yourself a question of where are you in standing with God? How's your relationship with Jesus as a Christian? Are you being beneficial in his kingdom? Are you being useful either for cold or for hot to restore, to refresh, to bring healing and hope, to bring restoration? Or have you become self-centered? Have we as a church in some way become self-centered? And this is a conversation that we need to have. If you see things around our church that you just go, man, I see things that I think we're getting off of the message of Jesus and making everything about us. And we need to talk about that. We want to hear what's going on in your heart. What's God letting you see? Because we don't want to be a church that becomes about us and forgets that there's a world out there that needs to hear the hope of the message of Jesus. We want to take the gospel out. But we can only do that when we're in right standing with him. So maybe today you need to make a decision to say, I need to get somebody in my life that can disciple me toward fellowship, being restored with Jesus. I've kind of slid away from him. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And I, I hear, I know Jesus is knocking at that door of my heart as a follower of his, asking me to return and, and as a church to return. And you need to get help to do that. So my prayer for us today is that we'll hear the, the, the voice of God, the message of God, and that we'll respond appropriately to it. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.